You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. This is the CRM Archaeology Podcast. It's the show where we pull back the veil of cultural resources management archaeology and discuss the issues that everyone is concerned about. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 145 for September 12th, 2018. I'm your host, Chris Webster. On today's show, we talk about the resistance to going digital in CRM. So dust off your tablet because the CRM Archaeology Podcast starts right now. Welcome to the show, everyone. Joining me today is Bill in California. Good morning. And Stephen in Calgary. Hello. All right, guys. So we are recording this on September 9th, 2018. And I think just less than a week ago, or maybe a week ago, the Brazil Museum, a 200-year-old institution, burned to the ground. Uh, total loss. Everything in there. I mean, maybe they grabbed a few, you know, tiny things in the ashes, but otherwise, total complete loss. And in my own professional life, I talk about, quote, digital archaeology all the time, although I mentioned on one of the last episodes how I hate the term digital archaeology because... That's like saying it's something other than archaeology when, as archaeologists, we should be doing digital as part of our normal workflow. That's like saying, if you're not doing digital archaeology, you're doing paper archaeology. We don't say that. We just say archaeology. <laughs> so it just should be, to my, to me, it should be part of the workflow and, and, and not part of like this weird philosophical discussion in 2018. It should be, you know, the thing. And that's what I want to talk about today because also in part of my professional life, I talk to a lot of people about basically going digital. And, and I don't, when I talk having those conversations, I'm not even referring to past collections. I'm not referring to the, the file cabinets that they have in their office and saying, you need to re, you know, make all that digital. They do, but I'm not referring to those. I'm talking about, let's start from now as a, as a zero point and, and say, okay, from this point forward, we have a plan for all our future projects to not only create digital data in the field or the lab or wherever we're starting the digital data process. And then uh, and then make that um, part of the archivable digital record and having a place to put it. So that's where I want to start with this. Well, I guess um, maybe you can tell me what digital archaeology is because that was a major question. And I'd argue we already are going mm-hmm. digital, right? Like all all the transactions that we do are online. They're happening, you know, through you know paychecks, uh, express or through the billing system that's coming from the client and everything you know now i'm at the university and that's probably one of the biggest problems that it is all digital so trying to get money out of cal is (laughs) not easy but uh, (laughs) um at any rate you know that all the accounting already is digital all the word processing we're already using computers to produce all of our reports all the mapping Mm -hmm. you know it's digital for better or for worse so what what separates the world you're talking about from what we're already doing. Well, I think you're totally right. Uh, as from for CRM, uh, cultural resource management, there is. I mean, I would say much much of the process is actually digital, exactly like you're saying. You know, all our maps and everything, uh, even the paper records that people record in the field become digital resources, right? And then they're stored on the computer servers. You know, we're not gone are the days where we're submitting handwritten paper site forms, at least 
in the West. <laughs> Maybe someplace else are doing it, but at least out here, gone are those days. But that being said, our field notebooks and and those paper records that are kept in the field are still stored in boxes. They're still curated with the project materials in an office somewhere or a storage room somewhere uh, or a state museum somewhere. Um, those are still curated. And which isn't the worst thing if those get lost, like if your old building burns down, but you've had your data stored off site somewhere, maybe in a secure cloud server or, or just another s- server room somewhere, then that's not a huge loss to lose those original paper records if you have all the digital ones. I guess what I'm referring to also are artifact collections, you know, that we're collecting in the field. You know, a lot of times we're not collecting artifacts anymore on survey in the West, but when you do excavation, obviously you collect artifacts on excavation and some of the resistance I've seen to digital recording of artifacts, not just taking photographs, but instead of taking two photographs of the artifact uh, when you collect it, or maybe three, take 10 of them. You know, it does, it's not that extra, not much extra time to take 10 artifact pictures, even if you're not going to create a 3D model, even if you're not going to buy the $6,000 software it takes to make that model, and even if you're not going to have the server space to store that model, the pictures are there. And if you lose the artifacts, like in the case of the Brazil Museum, they not only lost, you know, centuries of uh, paper data and and records that have been collected, but they lost priceless uh, artifacts as well. You know, artifacts that that are rare and will never be seen again. And if they had just even just gone around and taken, you know, taken a bunch of pictures of these things, not even they don't even have to be super high quality these days. (laughs) Just take a bunch of pictures and the software will figure it out and then store those things. Uh, in a, in a in some place, storage space is easy these days. It's practically free. Uh, I mean, it doesn't cost that much to have terabytes of storage, and uh, and you can take the pictures with an iPhone. You know, I mean, you don't need a a fancy six thousand dollar DSLR camera to take pictures, and you don't need even even need a fancy backdrop. People are doing three D reconstructions of historic sites based on inter- Instagram photos. They're actually doing that. Like they're taking Instagram photos of popular sites because there's thousands of them, stitching them together, making a 3D model. They did that from some of the sites that were destroyed in the Middle East and uh, in some of those, you know, war-torn areas. They just, they're creating 3D models from tourist photos. Were those people from those places doing that? I mean, in the case of Brazil, are are they even thinking about that kind of stuff, right? I guess we can't, you know, we well, can't really compare what happened the, well, what we can say is the worst case scenario of what could happen here is that, you know, like the Smithsonian t- bursts into flames and all the fire suppression equipment doesn't work and we lose all those, you know, collections and boy, we should have, we should have digitized it because, you know, this is the United States and, and we're inventing this kind of stuff. But I don't know if the case is the same in Brazil. We can use that as a warning, right? This could happen you know, in the United States, but I'm not sure if Brazil's at the same level. I mean, I'm not saying the Brazilians can't do this work, but I'm I'm not sure if they're really using those devices like we are and that we could apply that to their situation. I guess maybe we'll do the hypothetical, all of the Smithsonian Museum's torch, like they just go fire to fire Mm -hmm. to fire and the entire horseshoe of museums of the United States just burn. (laughs) Now that's where we should work from, right? Uh, I don't know what the answer is there. Um, I I don't know what kind of resources they had down in Brazil. Um, I I guess, Bill, you know, the thing that I'm I'm really concerned with is when I do have these conversations with people online, there is the the initial problem here that I want to get around is there is initial resistance to it. There's an, and it's usually a cost factor, right? With CRM, everything is the initial resistance is a cost factor. They say it's too expensive to either do it or store it. One of those two things. We either don't have the time 
or something like that. That's really what I'm getting at here. You know, the all the other problems will work themselves out if we figure out how to just get around that mindset. And that mindset is not age dependent either. I could easily sit here and say, oh, it's the, you know, archaeologists from the 70s and early 80s that started these companies that are resistant to it because they're old and don't want to do it. But that's not true. It's people of all ages that I've experienced saying an initial resistance, not a, hey, that's an interesting problem. You're right. Let's figure out how to solve that. Literally, nobody has ever said that to me. No one ever having this conversation. They all say, well, I don't know. It's too expensive and takes too much time. Okay, well then let's let, let's start from there because, like you said, there, we're already recording a lot of data digitally. Yeah. That's already part of our workflow. So what do we do? Because I remember one of the things that I had to do once uh, in Tucson is move a bunch of stuff. I was working for a company. I had to go to their storage unit, which was uh, just a you know a rental storage box where they kept all their records. Not well, not all their records. They kept many of them. They had more than one storage unit. Mm-hmm full of paper and old Apple One <laughs> floppy disks. Well, even before that, right? Commodore computer keyboards right. and stuff. They had all this stuff just sitting in there and it was just covered with dust. And so for whatever reason, we were moving it all from one storage unit to the other one. I think they were just trying to consolidate or they had gotten rid of a bunch. So on the one hand, they've got all these you know, financial records that they really do need to keep for X amount of years. But they also had a bunch of um, like ancient analysis that they'd done on ceramics from the 80s. It was all on paper. And it was all that paper that still had the, the perforations mm-hmm. on the edge so that the printer could, you know, make it all go. I don't know, man. I, I barely even remember right. that from my childhood, right? So they had reams and reams of that kind of data. Interesting work that someone had done all these ceramics that are just sitting there. They had all this other stuff. And then on top of that, they had like... 2002, you know, Pentium 3 or Pentium 4s that were, you know, just these old devices that are trying to maintain, right? So if we if we start from today and we know that 20 years from now that's going to end up happening, how do we get around that? Like that's that's one question. I'm not saying that we shouldn't do this kind of stuff, but I just know that data migration is a big issue. Sure. And so how are we going to move forward if we do start today? Yeah. That is a fantastic question, and it, and that's the kind of questions we should be asking ourselves. I think it's less of an issue than data collected uh, 20, 30 years ago because we really were in the dark ages and the, the, the wild west of data formats and data structure. You know, it was really trying to figure out what are the best things going to be. But we've got some data formats and data standards now that have been around for 15, 20 years that are probably going to be around for another 15 or 20 years more. But the point is... That's just part of the conversation. It's part of your annual uh, or maybe, you know, every five years you do a checkup on your digital data and you say, okay, what are the common file formats now? Can we convert these things over? Do we need to? Are we replacing all the servers on a good schedule? It's just, you know, you do you do oil changes on your vehicles uh, like clockwork, you know, you, you especially companies, because they know that if they don't have a vehicle, they don't have field work. And if they don't have field work, they don't make payroll, right? So if if you think about your digital data that way, and it's and again, it's weird that we don't because that is the most important asset that we have. Um, if you think about that, that about it that way, then you start thinking about those questions. So, I don't have the answers. If that's what we're looking for here, I'm trying to work out how we can get people to start thinking that way and to make it a priority in their lives and in their professional lives to say, hey 
we're having an office party next week and we should be figuring out our digital data structure because we don't have one. <laughs> and and to Stephen's point, uh, in the in the comments here, he's asking about digital site forms. Are they structured data or just a lot of electronic forms? Nine times out of ten, uh, probably nine point nine times out of ten, they are just digital forms. They're word documents, which is not data. So everybody keep that in your head. Word documents are not data. So when when you're having the conversation about born digital data versus creating digital data in the office, that's what we're talking about here. Born digital data, if done correctly, and you're not typing into a word form in the field or a fillable PDF, and you're actually using a database-based structure, whether you're right in the database or you've got some skin over the top of it that that's some sort of interface, that's creating data. And then from those data, you create forms. And that's what gets submitted. But the data is the only thing you really need to archive. You don't need to archive the site forms. You just need to archive the data. And that takes up, you know, an entire project of 300 site forms will take up, you know, a couple megabytes and that's it. Well, so, yeah, I mean, that actually, what I'm thinking right now, uh, this could actually be one of the kind of things that the company lab person or lab manager um, or lab director could end up, you know, that, that seems like it would be in that area because I'm just thinking of who would be best able to do this and I'm all the lab people that I've ever encountered or, or worked with, they all were uh, focusing on preservation and, and uh, accessioning artifacts. So I know that there will be a learning curve and everything. And I know that the next scream would be that that person already has so many things on their plate, they can't possibly take another thing. But if all you're talking about is oil checks and all they're doing is just checking in with the cloud-based you know, uh, data management company or whatever to make sure that the plan is optimized or that they're not spending too much money, but also that their data is still there and it's being migrated. I mean, that it doesn't seem like that'd be such mm -hmm. an onerous task, but then again, that that's me telling someone else to do more work and, and that no one meets that with a smile on their face. No, but it's, it's, Again, this is a, it's about the mindset. You don't think it as doing more work when you have to go into the field and do survey, right? That is your work. That is your job. That's not more work. That's not extra work. And and then processing the site forms at the end of the at the end of the project. That's not more work. That is the work. Producing the draft report, producing the final report, doing the maps. All those are work. They're not extra work that's being asked to be done. So, why is the the digital preservation of someone else's history not considered just part of the job. How, why is that considered more work right now? How do we make that just work and not more work? Right. I think the big thing is that um, it's more work because most people feel like they're doing it twice then. Like we, we already, you know, mm -hmm. like if, if you weren't indoctrinated into like a born digital system, like, you know, if you were, oh, I don't know, you started work in, in the 90s or something like that and everything was paper, um, then that you already have an established workflow. And and it becomes more work to relearn a workflow because to to that adapts to a digital system. Because the way that we have things organized in our head as, as to how we do the process of recording stuff in the field and, uh, you know, in the lab and then putting it into a report and, and then turning it into forms and, or, you know, going from forms to the report, you know, which, whichever direction you, you tend to work, um, moving to, um, a digital system, particularly a digital system 
if, if you have like a centralized repository, like site forms with the state or province or whatever, that forces you to basically you have to learn a new way of doing um, because the way that you've been considering or, or organizing the data in your head for the past 15, 20 years, it, that doesn't, that doesn't work anymore because you're, you're, um, the thing about structured data is that it has a structure and you're, you're not necessarily thinking about those uh, archaeological properties in, in that way. So all of a sudden it's like, well, is, is that a site feature or, or is that a structure or is it both? Is, is that like, pre, like, like how, how do I categorize it? How do I have to enumerate it? Like is, mm-hmm. if it's part of a site, is it also part of the survey area? Is, is it, you, you know, like, like if you're, thinking about like multiple uh, spatial areas um, and, and I'm thinking in terms of like uh, spatial data because that's kind of the realm I work in, you know, there, there are a lot of potentially structural issues of how we categorize things and count things that is completely or can be completely foreign to the way that you've addressed it in the past. But all of a sudden, you know, somebody else, and, and and sometimes it's the agency, and sometimes it's you know the person who made the database um, is, is handing you a completely foreign structure, and and you, you know, it's it's why should I spend all my time readapting the, the entire way that it records stuff when you know, like like I already had a system that worked. I can help you with at least one part right there because if you're using a system for digital data collection in the field that requires you to collect stuff in a different way than you're used to, then it's not the right system. You know, there's definitely systems out there. Wait, wait, uh, wait. When I was using tap you, forms. You don't get the choice because if, <laughs> no, no, because if you're working with a state or like a regional database that yeah. here's how I do my site forms, you know, when it was a piece of paper with a blank line, you could put it, you know, write it in any given way. Right. Like, you know, sure. But now it's like, no, no, it has to be, it can't be a float. Has to be an integer. Or, Mm -hmm. no, it has to be text. Or, like, like data has, you know, structural data has structure. And you haven't necessarily been playing that route because you've been working off paper, which is analog and and has no structure. Not Mm -hmm. that way. Um, and, right. and if you're not familiar with that, like if, if you're not even familiar, like why the hell is Excel constantly changing everything to dates? If that befuddles you, oh man, mm-hmm. like re relearning, yeah. re relearning the way that you record data is, is going to be, it's pulling teeth. It's, it's going to be painful. Okay. Okay. I, I've definitely got some, some comments on that, but let's do that after the break. Back in a second. Hey, podcast fans and digital archaeologists, have you heard about WildNote? It's a data collection app that works online or offline on your smartphone or tablet, iOS or Android. It allows you to collect field data easily, manage data efficiently, and generate data reports and site records effortlessly. We have a growing list of state site forms built in for your use and some generic forms that will work anywhere. Check out the shovel testing and photograph forms. You can get a free all-access 30-day trial today by going to wildnoteapp.com. That's wildnoteapp.com for your free 30-day trial. Now back to the show. (laughs) 
And we are back to Sierra Mark Podcast, episode 145. And we are talking about the resistance to going digital in CRM. And, you know, when we left off, Stephen, you were talking about, um, you know, basically relearning the, the sort of ways that you record. And I agree. In the future, uh, and I don't mean now, but I mean in the future, there will be different ways that we record sites. There will be different ways that we have to think about the recording because of the way that we're recording the data. And however, right now, uh, even, even, geez, seven, eight years ago, whatever, however old the iPad is, because I got when it first came out, uh, and then Tapforms came out shortly after that. So I was using Tapforms for like six years. And one thing that I did to help create my forms in the field and recreating the structured site forms that we have here in Nevada and California, uh, I created those on tap forms. And you're right. Sometimes uh, I would choose that this entry field is going to be number only, or this entry field is going to be text plus numbers, or this entry field is going to be all caps, you know, whatever the hell the case may be. But I only did it when that totally made sense. Like, for example, I, I have seen some people's um, digital data entry systems where project number is is uh, is number only because they didn't know what they were doing. They didn't realize that a project number could have letters and words in it, <laughs> depending on the company. So you make it more flexible by saying, okay, this is text entry. Uh, sure, you're not writing it by hand, but on a, on a paper form, essentially every field is alphanumeric text entry or text or number entry because you can write whatever the hell you want. You can draw a little picture if you want. You can do that same thing on a digital entry form, which is adding all that information to a database um, that it's creating in the background. And then that database that you have, that's your, even if it's your personal company database, can be mapped to a state or agency database and then flow right into that uh, pretty easily, actually. And and it shouldn't take any manipulation whatsoever. And I was doing that with Tapforms, uh, a, a really kind of not made for that sort of thing uh, program. That's why I'm not using tap forms anymore. Um, but the other advantage to that is, let's say, you know, the agency sends out these, uh, the Nevada IMAX form, you know, the BLM sends out the IMAX form. Well, the IMAX form makes little sense in the flow of the recording. It's It's got some stuff at the top, some stuff in the middle and some stuff on the bottom. And the way that I record and the way that I know a lot of crew chiefs record, you just don't go linearly top to bottom. Um, it doesn't make any sense. But because it's a sheet of paper, it doesn't really matter. I can glance my eyes from here to here. Well, when I create the digital version of that, I create sections based on the way that I've recorded in the past and talking to other people that do the recording. We say, okay, this belongs together, this belongs together, this belongs together. But when it all exports, it exports into the usual format of an IMAX form because you can just map those fields to wherever you want to on the page. So I think going digital in the field from the recording standpoint is actually a lot more flexible than paper and a lot more intuitive than paper because it gives you drop-down menus where uh, in some cases on the form, you had 16 things to choose from and that took up a huge amount of space on the form because uh, they're all checkboxes. Utah has that still. They have checkboxes all over the place. And now it's a dropdown. And if, you're, if your choice is other, you choose other, and now you get a block that says, hey, type in your other right here any way that you want. So the ultimate flexibility is still there. And I would argue that it's even more flexible than recording on paper. It gives you more options and, and, it, and it, helps, it helps guide new people as well using the drop downs and things like that into somewhat of a better workflow than just handing them a blank sheet of paper that says, here, fill out all these fields. I don't know. That's my experience with it. Uh, I, w I would agree on just the, the basic level. Uh, you know, the beauty of structured data is that I can go out and, and you know, record stuff, you know, even with my uh, mm -hmm. 
my Garmin unit. Um, you know, I can take waypoints and, and do like a character code in the comment section that um, that then when I bring it back, the GIS machine can automatically sort, you know, sort through because of, you know, um, like using uh, regular expressions to look f- through the uh, comment section. And it automatically breaks everything into, you know, is it a shovel test? Is, is it a surface find? Is it, you know, um, just a point taken as a note? Is it, you know, like basically, basically what all this data is, um, it gives it and then divides it up, separates it out structure. And then you get automatic tables that you can use to write your report with or stick into your report. As, if you just want to mm-hmm. do a table as a report, if you can get away with that. But the problem is, is that that that's a very superficial perspective of data um that that you know that, that's great like it, it, it speeds everything up you get get the report out the door faster um you know we're, it's 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 quicker getting to the numbers and the maps and, and everything like that it's 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 great but it assumes that the way you know what you're actually recording is structured in the same way um, that that the way that you're conceiving the sites and the landscape and you know what things are that that this system works where I'm like doing my codes in, in my uh, Garmin unit Th- this works great when I know which code to use mm-hmm. right like you know like oh here's a pile of you know lumber and and I've got like a code I can put in there. But the, where, where this breaks down is for people who predate this system, it, it, you know, if you don't think about it in those terms, you might, in, instead of taking it as, you know, like whatever the, the code is for um, pile of lumber or, or, you know, is it a collapsed structure? Is it, you know, however you're conceiving of it, you might just take a note and, and not think about like, oh, but if we turn this into you know, a collapsed structure, all of a sudden we need dimensions. Right. Like how big is the pile? Like, you know, other, other factors that are part of the recording. And even if, you know, even if you have a digital fob, you know, um, form that would, you know, if you said structure or a collapsed structure would automatically ask you, well, what are the dimensions? That's not going to help if you don't categorize it as that in the first place. And, 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 and so the problem, can you give me an example? I'm trying to. <laughs> um, yeah. okay. well, so, you know, for example, for uh, site features in Alberta, um, this is part of the spatial data submission that we have to provide. Um, dimensions are a part of it. But if you don't think about a particular thing out there as being a site feature in that sense, you're not necessarily recording those, you know, th- those dimensions. Um, you, you might just be like, well, I'm just going to make a note of it. And then you get back to, back to the office and you're like, oh, yeah, that would be a site feature, wouldn't it? Okay, well, hmm. yeah. what are the dimensions then? Okay, <laughs> uh, looking at photos, you know, like like looking at your like your breadcrumbs on, on, on the GIS trying to measure between when you walked around it. And, <laughs> you know, like yeah. like you come up with like stopgap measures of like trying to determine these things. And, and, and that's the problem. The problem isn't lack of flexibility in the software itself. The, the problem is that the structure of data 
affects how your particular workflow, the way that you conceive of, uh, like the you know the the properties, the archaeological materials in the field, needs to reflect the the structure of data that as you need to report yeah. because now you're reporting data and not just a report. You know, if, if it was an analog report where you just write a paragraph describing it, that that becomes a lot easier. How is this a problem with with digital recording? Because it sounds like if you're recording on paper, you're more likely to forget the measurements than recording on a thing that will say, "Hey, dumbass, don't forget the measurements." You know what I mean? Well, I, I, that's a really good question, and I think the answer is kind of a horrible answer. Um, it, it's <laughs> it's actually that um, when you were doing things on paper you could get away with not including stuff. You know, you know like if, if, if I'm giving a, you know, like a, a verbal description of something and, and I miss one field, everything doesn't go to shit, right? Yeah. Like, like I can, you know, and, and people will be like, oh man, it would have been nice if you would include the dimensions on this. Mm-hmm. What, what kind of digital entry system would go to shit if you didn't take the dimensions? The ones that I use, they're not required fields. It's totally flexible for the user. You know, you can still save it and move on and forget everything. It's going to prompt you and say, hey, these fields now exist here because you entered this piece of information. And you don't. if you don't fill out those fields, it's the same thing as not taking the data down on paper or whatever your medium of choice is. It's still the onus is on the person, which it sounds like this is what you're saying, too. It's a huge training issue. The onus is on the person to actually do their job correctly and think about these things in a way that they need to be thinking about these things. I don't know that paper or digital can fix that. That's the person. You know what I mean? And, and, and from what I can see, digital is actually a better checklist on that. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Um, my thought is that when things were in paper, and, and I can say this from experience because you know I actually started running projects when everything was on paper still. Yeah, a lot of people are still doing that. Yeah, it didn't work, but, you know, it's it's like a lot of submissions and and forms and everything was derived from paper. I I think that paper, because paper is analog, it allows for that gray middle where you can do things the wrong way (laughs) and and not get called on it. Whereas, you know, if if it's uh, a like a digital submission, like you are submitting, yeah. you, you, you're like beaming digital data back to the, you know, mothership <laughs> and, and you left the particular field empty and that field is required and has always been required, but you might not have ever filled it out. <laughs> you know, like this is going to puke. So I'm, I'm confused. We're talking about the resistance to going digital. It sounds like you're saying the plus of paper is I can forget stuff and not be held accountable. No, the resistance going to data is that it forces you to rethink how like data structure goes. And and I'm trying to think of a good way to do doing that. I've worked for several companies that had in quotation marks, extra fields. So there were extra boxes that we were supposed to be filling out, but no one ever did, right? And so some of those were conditional, right? Like a locust box, and you were supposed to explain what locust you were in. Well, you don't always have loci, but your paperwork a lot of times will still just have that anyway. And you know, no one ever has to fill it out until that day they do have to fill it out. And it's been you know, three years since anyone used the locusts. And so they can't really remember how they were supposed to be, 
you know, grouping features and, and uh, point provenience things on the landscape to make loci. And so it's just kind of like, well, is this a concentration of excavation units or is it just a region of analysis that we've decided to choose at the site that this is where we're going to dig or, or is this, uh, you know, how, how are we categorizing this? Right. But then, you know, crew chiefs just start using the locust box, locust a, and maybe that's just the, where we park the trucks parking lot a, where we're going to do some excavation units there. That's essentially locust a, right. But then maybe in 1996, when the guy first made that locust box, it actually did have a scientific meaning because we were at this big area with many different features. And it, it actually meant, you know, a constellation of archaeological features associated with one time period, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, that's been 20 years and no one actually knew that. And so they're not using it, right? So this company could have been recording loci for years and years you know, a decade or whatever, right? And, and in their reports, they're talking about Locust D had check dams and this and that and linear features and all these other things, right? But nobody really knows what those actually mean. Uh, and then in 2018, we're saying Locust A is, you know, where the backhoe was digging along with there was a crane and a concrete machine. And that's where archaeological monitoring was happening because that was a concentration of construction activities, right? So I can see how that would be one of those ones. What if I'm I'm trying to think of, you know, how this would all play out? Like it's not really – you can't really compare your data across years because people haven't been consistently using that box. And then we actually don't really use that box. But what if our digital app forces us to always click Locus or NA, right? Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you can't beam it back to the mothership. Well, then no one actually really knows how to use Locus, and they still continue doing it arbitrarily <laughs> or choosing NA and then getting back to the mothership and being like, well, actually, you know, this does qualify as a Locus. I, I read that report from 96, and this is what a Locus means. Oh, okay. And then you go back and change all the data, right? I guess some of the advantages I see to digital, and I was doing this in tap forms, and, and we're doing this on uh, uh, on the WildNet platform as well, and, and other platforms are doing this as well. You have a lot more flexibility with what you can put in there uh, versus the paper form because with paper, you're obviously limited on space. And when you hire out for a project, I've worked for a number of projects in the West uh, before I started doing my own thing where you you don't never go to the office. You show up as a shovel bum in the field. Um, you're handed your own stack of paperwork or whatever you're going to do for the day or for the week or for the session. And then you go out there and record. And there's a decent chance that nobody that some people on that team have never worked in that state never worked with those forms and never seen anything. Now, if you're an archaeologist, chances are you know how to fill out most of the stuff on that form if you've done that stuff before in other areas because it's not rocket science. They just call it different things and they put it in different places. That being said, in a digital format, you can put in helper text. You can put in all these explanations that the pros, the people who are experienced, are just going to sail right on by. But the people who are not experienced can sit and take a minute and read. And they can have the definition for what this company says or that agency says a, a locus is. Or, you know, uh, when you're looking at artifacts, it says, here's an artifact. Take this many pictures and and do um, and do all these things. So, uh, you know, that's... That's the advantage of doing that. I think in both cases, it's a combination of training and familiarity. So, you know, if a if that same tech is trained up that we do digital stuff. I mean, I guess I'll talk about 
you know, workflow things in the next segment. But really, if you come out of school and your field school might have been paper or might have been digital or half and half, most of them are half and half, right? The field forms are paper, but you're still using a trimble and a total station and you're still using a digital camera, right? So it's kind of like different yeah. different devices uh, are digital, right. but, but the recordation is still on paper. Uh, at any rate, if you come from that, that, uh, that mode, then, then part of the field school should involve data management best practices, right? We download the, the lab, the cameras every day and we do this and we do that. And then we make sure that it's on the server so that people back in, um, you know, Florida or whatever can see it. So you build those workflows in so that when the individual gets to the field, well, sure, they have to figure out what a locus is, but they understand mm-hmm. the idea of, you know, I take digital device, then I'll record this XYZ. Then at 5.30, everybody rounds up all the iPads and they all communicate to each other and then save. And then when we get close to a Starbucks, we all go to the bathroom and get a coffee and then we wait while all the stuff sends it all back home to Florida. And then we yeah. go to the hotel. It's, it's new practices. And, and we'll talk about that right after the break. Hey, podcast listeners, do you find yourself wondering what the latest tablet or smartphone could do for your business? Wonder what GPS to pair with your device? Just trying to figure out how to go digital in the field without breaking the bank and or making a bad investment? Or did you find a technology company to work with, but just aren't sure the questions you need to ask during the initial conversation? Well, you're not alone. There are literally thousands of tech combinations out there, and it can be really tough finding the right one for your business and your workflow. My name is Chris Webster, and I've been working in CRM since 2005, and I've been a tech enthusiast my entire life. I spend my time trying to figure out how to make archaeology more efficient, both technologically and financially. No one is going to give you a big pile of money to do whatever you want with, so you have to make the most of what you have. The right gear can mean the difference between zero margins on that next project and an employee benefits package. That's where DigTech Concierge comes in. Let us be your technology guru. Whether you have just a few questions or want us on retainer 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, we're here to help. With years of experience, tens of thousands of acres of survey done completely digitally, and many, many people trained, DigTech is your tech BFF just waiting to guide you through this process now and through the inevitable changes to come. Should you hold on to those tablets or upgrade? What about the new operating system? Will it crash your apps, or can you go ahead and do it? We know the answers and can guide you to a profitable year. Go to www.digtech-llc.com slash tech-concierge to book a consultation or book us for the year. The yearly retainer includes unlimited calls and support and company training on software and gear. That's digtech-llc.com slash tech-concierge. And concierge is C-O-N-C-I-E-R-G-E. To get going and go digital today. Call us before you make any decisions. We've been there before. All right, welcome back to the final segment of the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 145. And to start off this segment, I've got to read this quote uh, from a person that seems like they were familiar with the collections at the Brazil Museum, uh, specifically the linguistics uh, section there. So I'm going to read that quote real quick. Folks, there's nothing left from the linguistics division. We lost all the indigenous language collections. The recordings since 1958, the chants in all the languages for which there are no native speakers alive anymore, the Kurt and I'm going to butcher this, Nimwendeja, Nimwendeja, I don't know, archives, paper, photos, negatives, the original ethnohistoric linguistic map localizing all the ethnic groups in Brazil, the only record that we had from 1945, the ethnological and archaeological references of all ethnic groups in Brazil since the 16th century, 
an irreparable loss of our historic memory. It just hurts so much to see all this in ashes. So yeah, well, that's that's pretty sad, and that's what really got me fired up about these conversations. I mean, normally when I have conversations about going digital with people, I'm so used to hearing no and getting rejected that it's just rolls off my back. But now I'm starting to see it because of quotes like this and probably 10,000 others that I, that I haven't seen. I'm starting to see it as almost unethical to not even consider digital as part of your workflow. To It's, it's kind of like you guys have sort of alluded to this. It's sort of a uh, and a, it's sort of a, a, a natural aside that we do digital in some ways, like GPS, we had to go to GPS. That's just like something we all knew we had to do. So we did it. And now it's part of our workflow. And that's digital. We took our maps, we made them digital. We all went to digital cameras. Um, and I think that's more because it probably saved us a ton of money being able to take a ton of photos, not have the film developed and still have good quality photographs that we can save and do things with. Um, I think that was a, a financial decision, but it was a good one because now we have all that information. It's all digital. We, we can do whatever we want with it. But with our site forms, nobody's forcing us to go digitally yet. You know, as soon as the agencies say, listen, you know, we're not going to support anything, you know, all, most of the agencies already only accept digital submissions to begin with. Although that being said, I just spent $120 to print out um, and bind two reports for the U.S. Forest Service here in Nevada and FedEx them the reports and the digital stuff on DVDs <laughs> or CDs. So, you know, that's, that's where we're at today. You know, they still want the paper copies. Um, but that being said, the digital aspect of our forms is not really part of our workflow yet. And that really surprises me because I see site forms as a checklist. Um, that's all it is. It's a checklist. A site form is after the checklist is complete, the site form becomes this thing that other researchers can look at and say, okay, I understand that it was this kind of site. There's these things about it. Here's the recommendation, you know, all these things. But before that, for the field workers, the field technicians, it's a checklist. And if you look at it as a checklist and you create your digital site forms uh, on, your, on whatever database application that you're using, if you create those and think of it, really, this is a checklist. This is something that has to be done. You put conditional logic in there that says, if I do this, I now have to do these things. That helps clean up the form from all the BS that doesn't need to be there. And it really streamlines the whole process and really just makes everything more efficient and helps to train your brain in that sort of way of thinking about recording the site as a checklist. Because, you know, I'll be honest, in the field, we're not, we're less scientists than we are just, you know, finishing up the checklist. I mean, we do some interpretation because we have to when we're trying to figure out, are we going to record this or not? How does this fit in with this? But really, we're just getting on down all the information in the field and that heavy analysis, the heavy lifting and the thinking on that happens post field work uh, in a lot of cases. Um, not in every case, but in a lot of cases, that's where it happens. So, you know, um, I, I don't know what to tell you. Um, that's how I see it. Now, Bill, you wanted to talk about some workflow issues and, and really... I, I think really getting this stuff into your workflow, what are your specific issues with that? Uh, two part. Um, the first part, I guess the most important part is envisioning what will happen with all this information after you're done with the project mm -hmm. and probably even dead, right? I mean, no one wants to really think about their own death, but seriously, what's going to happen to all of those sites and everything that you've done after you're gone uh, if you start thinking that way, most of us think that we're going to be these old people that will, you know, uh, uh, pass away at old age in this, you know, really comfortable and nice uh, way, similar to the notebook 
except for we're all old. So it's like a calm, a calm passing of life and honorable, right? Okay, well, if you're planning for that, right, and you're 35 years old, that means you got 50 years. So what are you going to do? What's going to happen to this stuff 50 years from now? Mm-hmm. The reason why the government agencies want those uh, paper copies is because they believe that 50 years from now, those paper copies will be the only thing that are left because they've seen so many different other kinds of database systems and Commodore and Apple and different Pentium renditions and PCs and all this different stuff come and go. And all that stuff is gone and in some kind of junkyard right now. Uh, no one knows how to use these floppy disks that are all deteriorating and flaking all apart. And there's no database that anyone knows of where this stuff exists in, you know, uh, um, uh, PC 1995 file formats, right? Mm-hmm. So we can't even actually look at that data anymore. The paper's like all we've got. I mean, there's a collection that I'm working on right now uh, with some students, and the site was part of some monitoring that was done in 1978. No one has any idea, as far as I know, where the original artifact catalog's at. There's, there's no digital copy. There's no paper copy. There's nothing, right? So they did fortunately write a report that has been in the San Francisco Library and the Campus Library of Berkeley, and it's been scanned and digitized, and it's on, uh, uh, what is it, the Hathi Trust? I can't remember. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it's online, right? So that report is pretty much all that exists of this collection that has – all kinds of awesome artifacts and it's you know two pallets with like 40 something different boxes of artifacts thousands and thousands of things the only thing that's left is the report yeah so nobody knows all the data there's no way we could redo their statistics without re-evaluating the entire assemblage we don't even actually know if we have all of the things right and this is only 40 years so planning ahead what's going to happen 50 years from now with that data have you i mean have you printed off paper copies of that stuff that have a likelihood of surviving? Have you saved it in the kind of uh, format that hopefully this corporation will last 50 years? And in the tech world, it's like, you know, create a big idea, hustle a bunch of, m- bunch of money, prove yourself, and then sell it off to Google or Amazon or somebody, and, and mm-hmm. then rinse and repeat, right? Well, we don't even know if Google's going to survive 50 years. So, like, what's, what's your, what are you relying on, right? That, that kind of long-term scope and and seriously paper has to be part of that that's just all there is to it because paper will last 50 years i've found it at archaeological sites that are more than 100 years old paper can make it so then the other thing is how are you going to set up your workflow in the near term on the day-to-day basis so that you can even be recording and saving that data daily so that it doesn't get messed up and so that you don't have a miniature disaster where you lose your information so that's the kind of day-to-day workflow that how do you handle your digital stuff like do you wait all the way until we get back home from the field to back up those gps points or is anyone writing any of this stuff down is is anyone using their phone to back up some of these you know smaller file types so that it's on multiple different devices i mean you can use your phone's bluetooth more readily and if you've got an android you've got plenty of space to back up pdfs and another uh, excel file so are you using that kind of stuff communicating with the tablet to create a temporary backup so even when you are in st croix or out in the desert you still have stuff backed up like are all those kind of things happening on a day-to-day basis so that it's even possible for you to have something that you could ever save for 50 years yeah well i okay so let me address the 
the first question that you had there um, about, you know, papers that going to be the thing that lasts. I, I don't disagree with that. That is the one medium that we have that you can always read as long as people still don't, you know, don't forget how to read in 50 years. You can always read that. You don't need special equipment. It doesn't need anything else. It can be sitting there on a table now and sitting on a table in 50 years. And chances are the population in 50 years will be able to read that document. Um, there's there's very, very little chance that they won't be able to. So that is true. However, that doesn't change the fact that we should still be thinking about digital um, and we should still be having that as part of our primary workflow. And the reason I say that is, uh, and, and first off, I, I do have to go back to something that was said a couple segments ago. I am a full Apple person uh, with all the things that I do. You know, I have many iPads. I have Apple Watch. I've got the headphones. I've got the computers. I've got all that stuff. I just like the way that they work for me. That being said, um, I've moved away from even recommending Apple as a field collection device. I want to recommend systems that you can use on any device because that opens up the workflow options. That opens up, takes down some of those barriers for different companies that say, you know, well, we bought a bunch of iPads, so we can't use your system. Or we bought a bunch of Android devices, so we can't use your system because it works on something else. But open it up to multi-platform usability and you open up the opportunity for people to use that. So that's one of the barriers to entry to actually going digital. So following on that conversation, when you do record everything digitally, sure, we might think we have the best archiving system right now on the planet for saving things digitally. Maybe you've just nailed it. You've got it all done. But just as a backup, you can always print that stuff out. I mean, I hate to say that because I won't, but you can always print that stuff out. So if you're... If you're Safety uh, blanket for this is paper, boxes of paper site forms and the reports and the notes and everything, then just print them out. If that's an expense the company wants to have and, and then the curation expense of, of keeping that, if there is an expense to it, you know, putting it in a storage unit or putting it in the museum or something like that, you can still print it out. There's this weird disconnect that people have. I've actually had this conversation at conferences where people are like, yeah, but if I record digital, then I won't have a copy of it. You know, I won't have the paper. That is so weird. Sure, if you lose that digital copy somewhere between the field and the office, you're right. You lost it. That's that's tough luck. But by the time you get back to the office or by the time you get into an area where you can sync it to the cloud and then produce that site form, just hit print. Now you have a paper copy, okay? So then you have both. If that's what we need right now, I am all fully on board with that. And then we can recycle the paper in 50 years when we've finally figured it out. Now, the second half of that question is, data formats and things like that. I think the worst thing that people could have done is taken a brand new technology back in the 60s and 70s, which was computers and the mass use of computers. I think the worst thing they could have done was apply it to a field as sensitive as other people's historical information, i.e. archaeology. So the re they did that, though, and, and I, I sort of applaud them for the forward thinking, but not forward thinking enough to think, hey, this is so new that you know, A, is it going to be around in 10 years? And B, are we going to have to continuously go back to these data and look at them? Because that's the one thing those guys did. They put all this stuff in boxes, these floppy disks, like you said, Bill. And the fact that those floppy disks are still sitting there means they didn't have a plan for their data for the future. They should have gone back to yeah. those floppy disks, changed the data format, uh, you know, saved them onto something new and then kept storing them. But they, they put it away and they forgot about it. That's easy to do with paper, but you just can't do that with digital. It's not, it shouldn't be part of your workflow. Your part of your workflow should be going back and saying, how does this look now in five years? And what, what can we do to keep it going? 
hell, not even wait five years. My laptop well, doesn't even make it five years. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I guess there's got to be a middle range, right? So every year, well, the key would be people saving their stuff to the company FTP or the company servers rather than on their individual, like use your individual stuff. And then when you're done, you take your entire folder for that project and just save it all on the company's servers. And hopefully the company is paying a cloud company, you know, an organization to actually manage all that data and make sure those servers are serviceable, right? Okay, so that's that's like the midterm that you you do your stuff on your daily flow, you record all this data, you're saving it in your files, you're saving it every which way, and then you scrape it all into, or at least copy and paste it all onto the company servers. Mm-hmm. So that then they're all saved there. Um, then you're right, the five-year plan's got to be, okay, so every, at the end of the year, the company does what? Prints off the report? I mean, I don't know. I guess develop a thing, right? right? So the end of the year, every single year, we do XYZ. And every five years, we do XYZ, right? So right. I do know that every single year at the companies I worked at, they kind of look and see what, take an inventory of what devices people have, how trashed are all those trimbles, how many miles do these trucks have left, how many you know, people are working on ancient laptops and then, you know, the employees are supposed to get a new laptop or a desktop or whatever they're using. And then they might go and get a new truck and, and retire some of the trimbles and, and some of the other stuff, right? It's the yearly inventory stuff that usually happens in the winter in, in the north and maybe in the summer in, in Arizona. I don't know. But at any rate, they, every year they do go through that. Well, you could expand that to your digital stuff. Sure. So do we have boxes of floppies at the end of the year? Okay, what are we going to do with all these floppies? What are we going to do with maybe we take one box of floppies from the 80s and try to find some kind of a way to get that data. And if we can't, we just toss it and call it a loss. Right, so you're slowly going through the, the, the storage unit and just year after year trying to recover that old stuff while also making sure that your new stuff will exist in the future. Mm-hmm. And anybody says they don't have time for this or they don't have the budget for this, uh, I call bullshit on that because the the best reason is any field tech listening to this or anybody who was a field tech at some point, any single, every single one of you guys have spent time sharpening shovels, fixing screens, straightening pin flags, and just reorganizing (laughs) stuff because you have to get 40 hours in. And there's nothing for you to do right now. You know, we've all had those time periods where there was simply nothing to do and you're doing busy work and you're billing it to a project. You're billing it to overhead or you're billing it to a project. Well, instead of doing that, that now some of that stuff has to be done, of course, you know, fix your screens, sharpen your shovels, but take those other people that are staying around watching you do that and have them grab a box. Have them grab a box and go scan it, you know, pick up a high-speed scanner or just use an iPhone with Dropbox on it. The document scanner on that is phenomenal. My help, my Civil Air Patrol squadron, that's all we use to scan documents is on iPad mini. And we scan our entire record, an Air Force uh, checkable once a year record that they've accepted. We do it with an iPad and Dropbox. (laughs) So it's not hard. It just has to be part of your workflow. That's all we're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you can, if they're, I don't know how you even get data from the 80s off of those computers. Well, you might not be able to. It's too late. Yeah, totally. But I mean, that's the thing. So if, I mean, the plan, it appears like, in my experience, was to keep several old Pentium 1s and stuff in these ancient old 1990s, you know, Apples, 
well, you're right. I guess fire that baby up. Does it even turn on anymore? Can it read a disc, right? And if it can, okay, let's see if we can find some kind of a way to get it off that floppy and onto a hard drive or onto some other kind of medium. And you're right. Just when people are sitting around, they fire up this old Apple One, see if it still works, and then just start putting discs in and see if they yeah. work. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's true. You know, maybe when you buy a computer for your office, you should buy two of them and leave one of them in the box. That way, you know, it's, <laughs> it still works in 20 years when you got to fire it up. <laughs> what, what's better than an apple? Two, two apples. apples. <laughs> Just buy yourself a bushel and call it good. <laughs> yeah, so later on my kids can come to my office and look at all these boxes of apples and stuff just sitting around like, well, you know, that's the stack of things that we actually used. And then here's the other stack of taxpayer money that never got right, used. Right. Actually, I, I stand corrected, though. Don't just leave it in the box. Fire it up because it won't be able to load up all the software for 2018 for today. Um, you try to fire up a, a computer you bought today and load it with software in five years, it simply won't happen. So, yeah, you still won't be able to use it. Okay, well, I think that's about it for this show. Um, I'd like to know what you guys' workflow solutions are or for any questions you have on this, um, or you just want to sit and disagree with us. Send us a message, leave a comment, whatever you got to do, wherever you found this, wherever you heard it. Just give us some feedback. We'd like to hear it. So even if it's negative, we especially love negative feedback because then we'll argue with you, and that'll be really fun. So it's, it won't be just those guys arguing with me. All right, so that's it, and thanks, and we will see you next time. That's it for another episode of the CRM Archaeology Podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.archpodnet.com slash podcast. Please comment and share anywhere you see the show. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or just email chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Support the show and the network at arcpodnet.com slash members. Get some swag and extra content while you're there. Send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. Thanks to everyone for joining me this week. Thanks also to the listeners for tuning in, and we'll see you in the field. Goodbye. Adios. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.